It's time for the What in the Podcast. Hi, everybody. Tonight, we don't have anything planned. <laughs> so because of that, we didn't want to leave you hanging. So we've actually recorded a couple shorts for you tonight. So sit back and enjoy What in the Podcast Shorts. Begin audio transmission. Welcome to the What in the Podcast with your hosts, Kent Whittington. And Adriana Mito And Tracy Lynn Hernandez. Welcome to the What in the Podcast. I'm your host, Kent Winnington. Along with me tonight is my lovely co-host and wife, Adriana. Say hello, dear. Hello, dear. Ah, you're funny. <laughs> Tracy's not with us tonight. She has some issues at home. But we are doing something a little different. We've done it before in the past, and people seem to like it, so we're going to do it again. We're going to... Give you a couple of our shorts that we plan on doing here sometime in the near future, hopefully. Um, each of us have found a couple of short stories that we want to do, and we're going to tell them to you tonight. And we're calling them What in the Shorts. Yep, What in the Shorts. That was loud, sorry. Yes, it was. <laughs> Before we get into it, though, um, a couple things. Our contest, we still haven't decided what it is yet, so it's still waiting in the wings. You know what the prize is, though. It's a copy of Stranger Things Season, season one. 1. Made to look like a DVD. In, in the VHS case. Or VHS, yes, DVDs in a VHS case. case. Sorry. Tired. <laughs> Basically, it's the collector's case. Yes, it's actually pretty cool. Uh, and if anybody has questions, direct them towards Tracy. Okay. She has a copy. Has we a haven't copy, opened yes. ours yet, so. Yes, but she has, and she loves it. And just a shout out for for Craig. He is the winner. He would have been the only winner anyway. Um, we will be getting your T-shirt to you shortly. Yep, I'm in the I'm in the process of uh, getting it set up to print, and hopefully we'll get that out to you soon, Craig. And if anybody else wants to order the same shirt, we're gonna try and set up a link, maybe. Yep, we'll make that open to everybody. We will try. Yep. You'll have to buy your own. We're the only one that's getting one is Craig. <laughs> this is true. So, because okay. he earned it. <laughs> yes, he did. So, without further ado, let's get started. Hello, this is Kent Whittington from What in the Podcast with another one of our What in the Podcast shorts. Tonight, I'm going to be talking about the ghost of La Parva Ski Resort as told by Drew Tapke, a professional skier. Throughout Latin America, you'll hear variations of the story of La Llorona, or the Wailing Woman. Sometimes she's lost her husband, sometimes she's lost her children. Sometimes it's both, but in La Parva, a ski spot in the Chilean Andes, the Wailing Woman is named Lola, and everyone in the area swears they knew her before she died. A local restaurant owner said he dated her, pro skier Drew Tapke says, adding that the ski patroller he heard the story from pointed at the exact hut where the tale takes place. The story starts on a nice day in peak ski season. Lola and her young son plan to spend the days on the slope. As can happen in the Andes, a thick fog rose up from the valley, which often precedes the arrival of a real storm. The clouds enveloped the two as they were making their way down from the top of the mountain, and they lost contact with one another. 
Desperate to find her son, Lola began screaming his name as she ran through the thick fog. Unable to see clearly, though, she stumbled down a steep slope and began sliding towards a rocky collier. By chance, a local lift operator who was returning to his cabin came across her body. He was afraid she was dead, but on closer inspection he found she was still alive, just barely. Her body was covered in lacerations from sharp rocks, and the only word she said in the faintest whisper was her son's name. The lift operator worked to carefully pull her body to his cabin, which was just up the hill. He bandaged her cuts as best he could and then ran to fetch the doctor. Together, the doctor and lift operator made their way back to his hut, the fog hanging thickly in the air. When they arrived, though, the bed was empty, just the bloody sheets remained. Neither the woman nor her son were ever found, Tapke says. But locals report hearing her wail for her child whenever they near the lift operator's cabin. And here's the thing. Tapke does not believe in ghosts. Something, however, changes when he arrives in Chile each winter. Maybe it's the fact that from La Parva you can see up Cerro de Plomo, an Incan child sacrifice site. Maybe it's because Tapke has simply read so many magical realism books by authors like Juan Rolfo and Gabriel Garcia Marquez. But sitting alone in his cabin in the Andes, with the wind whipping the candles flickering, he swears that every now and then he just can't tell if what he's hearing is a woman or the wind. Welcome to What in the Shorts. I'm Adriana Camino, and this is my short. Weirdness abounds at Mount Shasta. We've already touched on it, but I'm going to add a little bit more. No place in America is the subject as of as many occult legends and stories as the majestic snow-capped dormant volcano now called Mount Shasta, rising 14,162 feet above sea level in the Cascade and visible for over 100 miles in the magnificent north of the state, the mountain has been famed in folklore and metaphysical speculations for centuries. Shasta's story ties in disparate elements, including white-robed phantoms, the fabled lost continent of Lemuria, underground cities, gold-bedecked tombs, and a host of the most colorful dreamers, holy men, and prophets this side of Tibet. The Shasta mythos begins approximately enough in Indian times. Hopi legend says a race of lizard people built 13 underground cities along the Pacific coast region thousands of years ago. One of these settlements was supposed to be beneath Shasta. The lizard people might have survived into the modern times. In 1972, a San Jose resident hiking on the mountain swore he saw a reptilian humanoid in shirt and trousers walking along the slopes. The Siskiyou and Miwok nations who consider the mountain holy had a legend about an invisible race of beings who dwelt there. The natives were so afraid of offending these spirits that it was taboo to climb the mountain above the timberline. One old Indian told of how when his father had approached the forbidden zone, he was suddenly he suddenly heard laughter of children echoing across the deserted slopes. The Lost Continent of Lumeria When... Whites arrived in the region, they began to create their own legends about the strange peak. One came from Frederick Spencer Oliver, a teenager who lived just south of Shasta. Oliver spent most of 1883 and 84 dig- t- 
imitating a book whose contents he claimed he received from an entity that called itself Pylos the Tibetan, titled A Dweller on Two Planets. The book was first published in 1886 and is still in print, a classic of what is now called channeled material. Dweller is largely about Pylos's life on the continent of Lumeria, the Pacific equivalent to the lost continent of Atlantis. Lumeria is a favorite subject of occult writers who claim the continent once housed a highly advanced civilization. A massive cataclysm around 12,500 BC destroyed the Lumerian world, they say, and the land sank beneath the Pacific Ocean. However, some Lumerian sages escaped the disaster. They burrowed into, the, into tunnels and secretly lived on into modern times. Pylos had been through several lives in both Lumeria and Atlantis, as well as in more recent times. In one account, he revealed a strange secret about Mount Shasta. Incarcerated as Walter Pearson, a California gold miner, Pylos was reintroduced to his mystic heritage by Kuang, a shadowy Chinese man. Kuang took him to one of Shasta's canyons where a hidden tunnel led to the secret meeting hall of the mysterious Lotharian Brotherhood deep within the mountain. Marveling at the vision of this hidden temple, Pylos described the walls polished as if by jewelers, though excavated as by giants, ledges exhibiting veins, veinings of gold, of silver, of green copper ore, and maculations of precious stones. A refuge whereof those who seeing see not can truly say, and no man knows, and no man saw it ear. But one man did know and claimed to have seen the secret tunnel. The man was J.C. Brown, a prospector for the British Lord Cowdray Mining Company. Brown was prospecting near Mount Shasta in 1904 when he came upon a partly caved-in tunnel in a mountainside, after clearing the opening, he found himself standing in a long, narrow room whose walls were lined with tempered copper and decorated with shields and walls and wall pieces. Further exploring, Brown found more rooms filled with gold and copper treasures, much of it covered with strange, undecipherable hieroglyphics. The room's floors were littered with enormous human bones, the remains of a race of giants. This already unlikely story takes an even more unlikely turn. Instead of carting off any of this amazing treasure, Brown quietly returned to civilization and kept the find a secret. Little was heard of him for 30 years. Later on, it was found out that he spent these years studying legends about Lemuria and the occult history of Western America. Brown was especially interested in Los Gigantes, a legendary race of giants who had inhabited prehistoric North America. The old prospector eventually surfaced in Stockton 30 years after his venture in the Cascade Mountains. Then, 79, and living off an unexplained private income, he joined forces with John C. Root, a retired printer and student of the occult. Root was fascinated with Brown's tale, and the two men organized an 80-man expedition to search for the lost tunnel. On the eve of the expedition departure, the explorers assembled at Root's house, and Brown told them that he would have a surprise for them the next morning. And surprised they were when Brown failed to show up the following day. He was never seen or heard from again. 
Police investigating the disappearance were puzzled by Brown's complete lack of motive for flying the coop. He'd never taken a cent from the explorers and had always seemed totally sincere in his desire to relocate the tunnel and its fabulous relics. The case remains unsolved, and the tunnel, if it ever existed outside Brian's ima Brown's imagination, was never found. Beginning, beginning with three eyes. Around the time Brown had been reading about the lost continents and giant prehistoric men, astronomer Edgar Eugene Larkin was in the Cascade Mountains testing a new telescope. When he trained it on Mount Shasta, he was astounded to see three gold-domed marble temples on one of the slopes. Larkin had never heard of Lumerians or their secret city, so he soon began to ask locals about the strange temples. Townspeople were only too happy to answer him. They claimed that tall, long-haired, white-robed people were sometimes seen around the mountain roads and paths. The strange beings were, wore headbands, they said, to cover the pineal third eye protruding from their foreheads. Sometimes the white-robed creatures appeared in local towns, furtively trading gold dust and nuggets for supplies. When people tried to follow or photograph the beings, they would disappear into the shadows or simply fade into nothingness. Rosicrucian author Harvey Spencer Lewis, writing under the pen name of Wishar Survey, spoke of these entities in his Lemuria, the Lost Continent of the Pacific. He said that they sometimes chase trespassers away from Shasta's eastern slope, a wilderness area ruptured, reputed to be their stronghold. There, the white-clad phantoms held eerie midnight ceremonies, chanting as they stood and circled around a fire that cast beams up to the clouds. Lewis also claimed that the inexplicable light beams stalled cars along the region's roads and that UFO-like boats often flew in the skies over Shasta. Magic dwarfs and other weirds. <laughs> as more seekers of mysterious enlightenment came to Mount Shasta, the strange yarns and legends multiplied. One tale emerged about a race of dwarfs living inside the mountain who possessed magic bells that are sometimes heard ringing from above the timberline. Another story tells of a huge boulder called Sphinx Rock on Shasta's south slope at another 11,000 feet, sculpted into a human form by persons unknown. Bigfoot has made a few appearances at Shasta as well. In 1963, a Sasquatch allegedly carried an injured hunter to safety just north of the mountain. In recent years, the volcano's reputation as a place of mystery and revelation have become stronger than ever. During 1987, harmonic, during the 1987 harmonic convergence, a worldwide event intended to Mark the beginning of a new age of peace and enlightenment. Mount Shasta's snow-capped slopes appeared on television screens around the world as a symbol of the movement. Aquarian prophets proclaimed the peak a prime power spot on the planet and a key place for the great gathering. Thousands showed up at Shasta on the big day, August 16th, but despite the masses meditating, praying, chanting, humming, and sage-burning, not so much as one right-robed, three-eyed Lumerian showed up to greet the assembled celebrants. Perhaps these wise beings feel they've created enough mystery and are keeping to themselves for, for now. And I believe that's all I have for the moment. Have a wonderful evening. Hope you enjoyed it. Hello and welcome to Tracy Lynn Hernandez's What in the Shorts? 
Tonight we're going to continue our theme from before, like I said it was going to. We're going to talk about cursed objects. I have two. Two in this little short for you. Are you ready? I think I am. The first one's going to be the cursed mirror. Now, the best part about this is the mirror that I'm talking about is in the mansion of the Myrtle's Plantation. In the mirror, you can see handprints on the glass and see the occasionally the souls of the people that were poisoned. But were they? So let me tell you a little bit about the story before we get back to the mirror. The, hand, the, the story is that handprints in the mirrors, footsteps on the stairs, mysterious smells, vanishing objects, death by poison, hangings, murder, and gunfire. Myrtle's Plantation in the West Feliciana town of St. Francisville, Louisiana, holds a rather dubious record of hosting more ghostly phenomena than just about any other house in the country. But what could be more dubious than, than that honor itself? Well, that would be the questionable history that has been presented to, quote, explain, end quote, why the house is so haunted in the first place. Long acclaimed as one of the most haunted houses in America, the Myrtles attracts an almost endless stream of visitors each year, and many of them come in search of the ghosts. There seems to be little doubt about the fact that the house is haunted, its reasons that it's haunted, it's been called into question, though. For several generations, owners and guides of the plantation have been presenting the facts of the history that they know is blatantly false. The Myrtles, according to hundreds of people who have encountered resident spirits, is indeed haunted, but not for the reason that you have been told. First off is the myth of Chloe, the ghost that never existed. There is no question that the most famous ghost tale of the Myrtles is that of Chloe, the vengeful slave who murdered the wife and two daughters of Charles Woodruff in a jealous fit of anger. Those who have been reading or hearing about this so far have already guessed that there are some serious flaws in this story, but for the sake of being complete, we'll include the tale here because it's being told by the owners and guides of the house. According to the story, the troubles that led to the haunting of the Myrtles began in 1817, when Sarah Matilda married Chuck Woodruff. Sarah Matilda had given birth to two daughters and was carrying a third child when the event took place that haunts Myrtles today, according to the story. Woodruff had a reputation, according to the story, for the integrity with men with the law, but was also known to be promiscuous. While his wife was pregnant with their third child, he started an intimate relationship with his slaves. A particular girl, whose name was Chloe, was a house servant who, while she hated being forced to give in to, to Woodruff's desires, realized if she didn't comply, she'd be sent to the fields where the most brutal slaves' work was done. Eventually, Woodruff tired of Chloe and chose another girl to force himself upon. Chloe feared the worst, sure that she was going to be sent to the fields, since she began eavesdropping on the Woodruff family's private conversations, dreading hearing the mention of her name. One day, the judge caught her at his door and ordered that one of her ears be chopped off to teach her a lesson and put her in her place. After that time, she always wore a green turban around her head to hide the, hide the ugly scar that was left behind. What actually happened, though, is unclear for the next part. Some claim what occurred was done so the family would just get sick and Chloe could nurse them back to health and earn the judge's gratitude. And others said that it was just only done for one reason. Revenge. 
For whatever reason, Chloe put a small amount of poison in the birthday cake that was made in honor of the Woodruff's eldest daughter. Mixed in with flour and sugar was a handful of crushed oleander flowers. The two children, and Sarah and Matilda, each had slices of the poison cake, but Woodruff didn't eat any. Before the end of the day, all were very sick. <clears throat> Chloe patiently attended their needs, never realizing if, if it was an accident, that she had given them too much poison, and in a matter of hours, all three were dead. The other slaves, perhaps afraid that their owner would punish them, so dragged Chloe from the, her room, hanged her by a nearby tree, or hanged her in a new, nearby tree. Her body was later cut down, weighted with rocks, and thrown into the river. Which would have closed the children's dining room, where the party was held and never allowed it to be used again as long as he lived. Tragically, his life was cut short a few years later by a murderer. To this day, the room where the children were poisoned was never again used for dining. It's called the game room today. Since her death, Chloe has been reported at the Myrtles, has been seen, has been even accidentally photographed by a past owner. <clears throat> the plantation still sells picture postcards today with a cloudy image of what's purported to be Chloe standing between the two buildings. The former slave thought it was, the former slave is thought to be the most frequently encountered ghost at Myrtles. She's often been seen in her green turban, wandering the place at night. Sometimes the cries of children accompany her, and other times those who are sleeping are startled awake by her face peering over from the side of the bed. Now, after hearing this, even the most non-discerning readers would have discovered a number of errors from the problems with this fairy tale. Like the facts. The facts such as Clark Woodruff was never a womanizer. He was dedicated to his family. That Sarah Matilda had three children. A boy, a girl, and a boy. That Sorry, a girl, a boy, and a girl. Sorry, I take it backwards. That they were never poisoned. That mother and two elder children died. Where'd it go? Um, the the the. I love when I can read this. The mother and two other children had died a year after the supposed poisoning because of yellow fever, not because of a poisoned birthday cake. And the last child, Octavia, the one who would inherit the the land and continue it on the one that her father passed away peacefully in his home while she was living there with her husband see there's no murderer no poison cake just long lives for those who survived yellow fever and finally there's no record at all of Chloe or Cleo depending on who's, who's telling the tale not only were the, the members of the family not murdered, but there was no slave by that name after countless hours had been spent looking through property records of the Woodruff family that are still available as public file on record <clears throat> in St. Francisville. There's no evidence that, that she ever existed. Ever. So how'd the story get started? Well, in the 1950s, the Myrtles was owned by wealthy widow Marjorie Munson. Who had heard some of the stories and had gotten started about how the odd things happening in the house. Wondering if perhaps the old mansion might be haunted, she asked that around and got the legend of Chloe, or Cleo. According to the granddaughter of Harrison and Franny Williams, Lucille Larson, her aunts used to talk about the ghost of an old woman who haunted the Myrtles who wore a green bonnet. They often laughed about it. It became a family story. She was never given a name. In fact, the ghost of the green bonnet from the story described as an older woman 
never a young slave who might have been involved in a, with an affair for the owner of the house. Regardless, someone repeated the story of the Williams family ghost to Marjorie Munson, and soon a song was penned about the ghost of Myrtles, the woman in a green beret. The infamous staircase that people have heard phantom footsteps from, which stopped the 17th step where William Winter is supposed to have died in, his, in the arms of his true love. Unfortunately, that event never happened. Winter died on the front porch. He was the one murderer in the house. When someone rode up, and he heard while sitting in a meeting with people in his, his law office in, the, in the, the, the men's room, or men's side of the house, he heard horses, a horse run up. He heard his name called out about a meeting. He goes out front. He gets shot. He doesn't drag himself up and die in his arm in the love of his true love or arms of his true love. He died on the front porch. But that's not how it's, the story sounds good now, is it? As time wore on, the story grew and changed. The Myrtles changed hands several times in the 1970s. It was restored again under the ownership of Arlene Deese and Mr. and Mrs. Robert F. Ward. During this period, the story was greatly embellished to include poison, murders, severed ear. Up until this point, it was largely just a story that was passed by word of mouth and received little re little attention outside the area. But all that changed with, with James and Francis Kierman Myers passed through on the riverboat and decided to purchase the Myrtles. The house came furnished with period antiques and enough ghost stories to attract people from all over the country. Soon the story of the Myrtles appearing with magazines and books, receiving warm reception from ghost enthusiasts who had no idea what they were hearing as a badly skewed version of the truth. The house appeared in, in Life magazine, but the first book that I that was found that had been mentioned that had mentioned the house was by author Richard Weiner. Winner, sorry. Both magazine and article mentioned that the poison deaths of Sarah and her daughters. But we've we know Sarah lived for a year and was struck down by yellow fever, not poison. As time went on, television crews and authors and more people came out calling the Myrtles. The story changed again, this time it took on even more murders. In addition to the death of Sarah, Matilda, and her daughters, and Chloe, it was alleged as many as six other people had been killed in the house. One of them, Louis Sterling, the oldest son of Ruffin Gray Sterling, who was alleged to have been stabbed to death in the house and gambling debt. However, burial records of St. Francisville state that he died also from yellow fever. Being the, the son of the creator, of the builder of the house. There's a lot of yellow fever that happens in the area. There's a lot of yellow fever that has happened to that house. So is Myrtles really haunted? There's nothing to say it's not haunted. In fact, I believe it is. There's no denying the sheer number of accounts that have been reported and collected that would cause the house to, to qualify as the most haunted house in the country. However, as you can see, the house is maybe haunted, but not for the reasons it's claimed for so many years. In all likelihood, the infamous Chloe never existed. Matilda and her children were never murdered, but died from disease. Instead of ten murders in the house, only one occurred when William Winter died. And he certainly did not stagger up the stairs to die in the 17th steps of the story of the phantom footsteps allegedly bear out. Such tales belong in the realm of fiction, not the chronicle of the alleged most haunted house of America. The Myrtles can be a perplexing place. History has shown that many stories have been told about the place, mostly explain hauntings, but never occurred. In spite of this, the house seems to be haunted anyways. The truth may be as, as elusive thing as the grand old plantation house itself, but there's no question for those who stayed and visited there, it's a spirited place. At the Myrtles Plantation, the ghosts of the past, whoever they might be, are very, very, very 
near the living. The next step for your hearing pleasure is Baker's wedding dress <clears throat> from the Baker Mansion in Altoona, Pennsylvania. This dress was the dress of Anna Baker who fell in love with an iron worker. Legends claim that Anna eloped from her home to get married with her lover, but her father forcefully brought her back and locked her in her bedroom. She then refused to marry anyone else, spent the rest of her life alone. After death, the members of her family reportedly began seeing Anna's wedding dress in different places around the house. Some of it may, some of them even saw the spirit of Anna Baker moving around the house dressed in the same gown. In 1849, Anna Baker fell in love with an iron worker. Anna's father, Ellis Baker, who made his fortune as an ironmaster, refused to give his consent for the two to marry. Using his influence in the community, he had the young man banished from their hometown of Altoona, Pennsylvania, dooming their daughter to a life of spinsterhood. Anna was so angry that her father that she never married, remaining bitter and angry till her death in, in 1914, still living in the family home. Before her father sent away her true love, Anna has selected a beautiful wedding dress she intended to wear for her wedding. Within the year, another Altoona debutante, Elizabeth Dysert, Neat Bell, bought, brought the gown gloating that she would wear it, knowing that Anna would never do so. Years later, the, get the dress was given to Blair County Historical Society, who later donated it to Baker's Museum, housed in Anna's former home. The wedding dress was placed in a glass case that was in Anna's bedroom. Visitors claimed to have seen the dress move on its own, especially during full moons. The dress sways from side to side as if, as if the unseen bride is standing in front of a mirror, admiring herself in the gown. The dress has also caused hallucinations, causing people to see a ghost of a young woman dancing around the museum. Investigators, investigators who have searched for other naturally occurring circumstances have come empty-handed. No one can be sure why the dress sometimes moves itself, although many speculate that Anna Baker has claimed the dress. The dress has been seen shaking so violently to the point where it's feared the glass case would shatter, harming the dress. According to the museum now, the dress is no longer prominent permanent on display because of deterioration caused by sunlight or air pollutants? Or is it because it moves too much? Another opinion on this one is, or another point of view on this one is, is that the story is a true lover's ghost wandering the halls, forever dancing gracefully into the tunes of her unfulfilled love. Her memories are relived every, sorry, relived every night when the moon shines bright through the windows. She comes alive in her wedding dress. <clears throat> Elias Baker, the authoritarian figure and father, made Anna give up the only man she ever wanted to marry. The law stayed with her till her, till her death, and thereafter, confining her within the walls of, of the only true love she ever had known, the house away from the man. Anna made a decision to never marry again. In 1848, when Elias Baker died, she visited the man she still loved only to find him settled down. This made her bitter, angry, and sad she had lost the only chance of happiness because of her father. Anna soon lost her mind and was declared insane by the town for her erratic behavior and unusual, unsocial, unsociable, understand, er, uh -huh, unsociable behavior as well. I can read, really. Alone in the mansion, the maids would often find her dancing in the halls of her room, dressed in her white wedding gown, moving along the rhythm that played of her music box. Even though she died in 1914, her soul still dances around the, in the wedding dress to this date. The Baker's Mansion was opened up for everyone as a historical museum in 1941, with reported just several paranormal, unexplained incidents. 
The beautiful white wedding dress for Anna Baker was was cased until a few years back. It was put out on display in order to, to put out from display in order to preserve it. Before this was done, it was often seen in that glass case. And the dress would, would shake violently as if someone was trying to get it out get it out from there. A lot of times, especially during the full moons, it would sway and move and dance along as if a ghost was dancing with it. In Anna's room it was all so well preserved, her cameras and staff have often caught and seen images of an old castle lady in the mirror. Sometimes, Anna Baker's music box, left open in one of the rooms, would begin playing to itself. <clears throat> Cursed, along with other objects in the house. The ghosts inhabiting the mansion aren't solely of Anna Baker. It's been witnessed by visitors that furniture would seem to move on its own, along with sightings of women's spirit dressed possibly if, if, dressed in black, possibly Hetty, Anna's mother, or Elias's Baker's ghost has been spotted more than a few times, ascending the steps of the mansion. The tragic death of David Baker, Anna's older brother, in 1852, had led to the burial of his dead body in one of the rooms in one of the rooms of the mansion. Screams were reported from that particular room as possibly his, spil his still his spirit roams around the house. What do you think? I think that I want to learn more. But that will be for a later time. The processing of commercial information is complete. Back to the show. It's time again for another What in the Short. Tonight I'm going to talk about Jean Harlow House in Los Angeles, California. Los Angeles is one of the best destinations for haunted house hunting, and this Bavarian-style home in Beverly Hills has a particularly gruesome history. In 1932, it was home to the iconic actress Jean Harlow and her abusive husband, Paul Byrne, who shot himself in the head while standing in front of the mirror. Their butler discovered him and called MGM instead of the police, so there were tons of rumors that it wasn't actually suicide. Many suspected Byrne's ex-girlfriend, a suspicion exacerbated by her jumping off a boat to her death a couple of days later. Jean moved out after his death, but died only a few years later at the age of 26. But it gets creepier. In 1963, celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring bought the home and lived there with his girlfriend Sharon Tate until she left him for Roman Polanski. They were still friends and remained so until both of them were murdered by the Charles Manson cult. Tate was the same age as Harlow when she passed. But back to when the couple lived in the Harlow house, Tate told several friends of creepy occurrences in the home and even mentioned it in interviews. For example, once when she was sleeping in the master bedroom alone, she saw a creepy little man. Her friends say she believed it to be Paul Byrne's ghost. She was so freaked out when she saw the alleged ghost that she ran out of the room and then saw a hanging shadowy corpse with its throat slit in the hallway. There are also stories about two other people dying in the swimming pool over the years. Hi, I'm Adriana and welcome to What in the Shorts? Kings Island Cemetery. Beginning every spring, thousands of people from Ohio and beyond make the trek along I-71 near Cincinnati to visit one of the best amusement parks in Ohio, Kings Island. 
Visitors delight in the rapid stomach-dropping dips of such famous attractions as the Beast, but most aren't aware that they may be in for one last thrill as they exit the park. After a long, exhilarating day on the Ferris wheel, coasters, and tilt-a-whirls, you might just catch a glimpse of a ghostly young girl skipping through the King, King's Island parking lot. Often described as having blonde hair wearing a blue dress, she is apparently quite playful. Some witnesses report that the little girl likes to play hide-and-seek among the cars, and park tram drivers claim she frequently darts in front of the trams in a bizarre game of chicken. The girl's identity and her reasons for haunting Kings Island have long been debated, but most agree that her ghost originates from a small attraction you won't find listed on any Kings Island park map, a small cemetery sitting quietly near the parking lot exit gates. Encroaching on the dead. Over the years, the cemetery has been known by many different names, including the United Methodist Cemetery and the Dog Street Cemetery. For a long time, it was simply referred to as the Dill Cemetery or the Hoff Cemetery to reflect the names of various landowners. In the late 1800s, the King Powder Company opened for business, and although it ceased operation in the 1940s, the King family continued to own the land until large portions of it were purchased to create Kings Island Amusement Park in 72. Almost all of the existing buildings of the property were demolished to make way for the park's rides. The cemetery, however, was allowed to stay. Today, the cemetery sits quietly beyond a wooden fence at the far end of the King's Isle parking lot. Since it is only about 12 feet from the pavement, a popular herbal legend states that the girl's ghost arrived on the scene when her grave was inadvertently paved over. Although theories arise from the baffling disappearance of numerous gravestones over the years, in the 1980s, an official count of the cemetery stones revealed that there are approximately 69 stones when it's within its confines, but in 2005, only 52 remained. What became of the missing stones? In the field of paranormal research, is it, it is a common belief that disturbing final resting places of individuals often results in a haunting as the spirit surges to make its grave whole again. Perhaps this is why the ghostly girl roams the grounds. Okay, Kings Island Amusement Park is at 6300 Kings Island Drive, Kings Island, Ohio. Um, and you can, it's www.pki.com and it's off I-70. Northeast of Cincinnati, Ohio, the cemetery sits behind a wooden fence at the far end of the parking lot. And apparently you can visit it. Um, this came out of the book Weird Encounters, um, and the la and the last story I did came out of the Weird California book. Hope you enjoyed them. Welcome to What in the Short with Tracy Lynn Hernandez. We're continuing my theme because you know I just love falling down rabbit holes. More cursed objects. Two more just for you. This one's the Annabelle doll. This discovery doll dates back to, seven, to 1970 when a mother brought it from an antique shop as a birthday gift for her daughter. Soon the family noticed strange things happening inside the house related to the doll. The family then called for help from renowned, subject, renowned psychic investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren, who found the doll to be possessed by the spirit of a seven-year-old girl named Annabelle Higgins, who was brutally murdered. Now the doll is in the Occult Museum in Connecticut. The doll, allegedly haunted, has been passed around a bit, and the stories change a little from what we had first heard right there. According to the Warrens, a student nurse was given the doll in the 1970s. They said the doll was behaved, had always behaved strangely. 
that a psychic medium told the student nurse that the doll was inhabited by the spirit of a deceased girl named Annabelle. The student and her roommate tried to accept and nurture the spirit-possessed doll, but the doll reportedly exhibited malicious and frightening behavior. It was at this point that they just that come on, it was at this point that they called in a medium to speak with the doll. The medium said that, that the doll was was it was possessed by the child and it was made worse. So they decided to, to reach out to to a priest because the spirit possessed doll was was getting more malicious and more frightening its behavior. They then reached out or the priest then reached out to the museum saying that it that it was demonically possessed and the museum took the doll, locked her in a glass box at the occult museum in Moreau, Connecticut. A Texas University State Professor of Religious Studies, Joseph Laylock, says, <clears throat> like most skeptics, he's dismissed the Warren's Museum as full of off-the-wall Halloween junk, dolls, toys, books, anything you can buy at a bookstore. Laylock calls the animal legend an interesting case study in the relationship between pop culture and paranormal folklore, and speculates the demonic trope of the doll is popularized by such films as Child Play, Dolly Dearest, The Conjuring, and likely emerged from early legends surrounding the, the Robert the Doll, as well as Twilight Zone, Season 5, Episode 6 titled, Living Doll, in which the character of the mother is named Annabelle. Released pri five years prior to the Warren story, Laylock suggests the idea of a demonically possessed doll allows modern demonologists to find supernatural evil in the most banal and domestic places. Commenting publicly on the, the Warren's Occult Museum coinciding with the release of The Conjuring's, the, the movie The Conjuring. Science writer Sharon A. Hill said that many of the myths and legends surrounding the Warrens have seemingly been their own doing, that many people have difficulty separating the Warrens from their Hollywood portrayal. She criticized the sensational press coverage of the Warrens Occult Museum and its Annabelle doll. She said, like life, like real life Ed Warren, real life Annabelle is actually far less impressive. Of the supernatural claims he made about Annabelle, Ed Warren Hill said, and Ed Warren Hill said, "We have nothing but Ed's word for this, and so for the history and the origins of the objects of the museum." The doll is also described in Gerard Vittle's 1980 biography of Edward and Lauren, or sorry, Edward and Lorraine Warren, the demonologist. There's more though. The true story of Annabelle's origin was from 1970, yes, according to the Warrens. It was taken to the museum for safekeeping, kept in a glass case with the Lord's Prayer inscribed, while a pleasant smile rests on her happy face sitting under a mop of red hair. But beneath the case, the sign says, Warning, positively do not open. To the uninformed visitors, the Warrens occult at the... the museum. It looks like any other Raggedy Ann doll produced in the mid-20th century, but the original Annabelle doll is anything but ordinary. Since her first supposed haunting, this allegedly evil doll has been blamed for demonic possession, a slew of violent attacks, at least two near-death fatal ex near death experiences, one fatal, 
In recent years, true stories of Annabelle have even inspired a series of horror films. But just how much of her story is real? Is the Annabelle doll truly a vessel for demonic spirit in search of a human host, or is she simply a child's toy being used as a prop for wildly profitable ghost stories? The true stories continue. Though she doesn't share the same porcelain skin and lifelike features of her cinematic counterpart, the Annabelle doll that lives in the occult museums, the famed paranormal investigators of Ted and Lorraine, the pair worked on the case and made it all the more creepy by how she appears. Her stitch features, including half-smile, bright orange triangular nose, invoke memories of childhood toys and simpler times. You could ask, if you could ask, Ed and Lorraine, though he died in 2006 and she in early 2019, they'd tell you the stark warnings scrawled across the case are more than necessary. According to the well-known demonologist couple, the doll is responsible for two near-death experiences, one fatal accident, and a string of demonic activities that lasted for 30 days. The first of the infamous hauntings allegedly traced back to 1970 when she was brand new. The story was told to the Warrens that... By, to the Warrens by two young women <clears throat> and retold for years after the Warrens by the Warrens themselves. The story goes that Annabelle, Annabelle Dahl had been gifted to a young nurse named Donna or Deirdre depending on the source from her mother on the 28th birthday. Apparently, the nurse was thrilled with the gift, brought it back to her apartment and shared it with another young nurse named Angie. At first, the doll was an adorable accessory, sitting on the sofa in the living room, greeting visitors with her colorful visage. But before long, the two women began to notice that Annabelle seemed to move about on her own accord. Donna would sit in her living room sofa before leaving for work, only to come home in the afternoon and find her in the bedroom with the door shut. Then she and Angie would find notes left throughout the house reading, Help me! According to the women, the notes were written on parchment paper, which they did not even keep in their apartment. Furthermore, Angie's boyfriend, known as Lou, was in the apartment one afternoon while Donna was out and heard rustling in the room as if someone had broken in. Upon investigating, he found no sign of forced entry, but found Annabelle laying face down the ground. Other versions say he was attacked upon waking up from a nap to find her there. Suddenly, he felt searing pain on his chest, looked down and found bloody claw marks racing across it. Two days later, they were gone without a trace. Following his experience, women invited a medium over to help solve their seemingly paranormal problem. The medium held a seance and told the women that the doll was inhabited by a spirit of a dead seven-year-old, Annabelle Higgins, whose body had been found years later, or years earlier, sorry, on the site where the apartment building had been built. The medium claimed that the spirit was benevolent and simply wanted to be cared for and loved. The two young nurses reportedly felt bad for the spirit and consented to allow her to take up the permanent a permanent residence in her in the doll. Eventually, in an attempt to rid their home of Annabelle's spirit, Donna and Angie called upon a Episcopal priest known as Father Hagen. Hagen contacted his superior, Father Cook, who alerted Ed and Lorraine. As far as Ed and Lorraine were concerned, the two young ladies' trouble started when they began believing the doll deserved their sympathy. The Warrens believed that actually. A demonic force had, in search of a human host was in, within Annabelle, not benevolent soul. The Warren's account states this, <clears throat> quote, 
Spirits do not possess inanimate objects like pets, houses, or like houses or toys. They possess people. An inhuman spirit can attach itself to a place or object that is what occurred with Annabelle in this case. The spirit manipulated the doll and created an illusion of it being alive in order to, re to get recognition. Truly, the spirit was not looking to stay attached to the doll. It was looking to possess the human host. Immediately, the Warrens noticed what they believed were signs of demonic possession, including teleportation, the doll moving its own, materialization, materialization, the parchment, paper notes, and the mark of the beast, Lou's clawed at chest. The Warrens subsequently ordered an exorcism of the apartment to be performed by, by Father Cook, and then they took Annabelle out of the apartment and to her final resting place at the occult museum in hopes that the demonic reign would finally end. Following her removal from the apartment, the Warrens documented several paranormal experiences involving the doll, just minutes after they took possession of her. After the exorcism of the apartment, the Warrens buckled Annabelle into the back seat of the car and vowed not to take the highway in case she had some sort of accident-causing power over them and their, or their vehicle. However, even the safe back roads proved too risky for the couple. On their way home, Lorraine claimed that the brakes either stalled or failed several times, resulting in near-disastrous crashes. Lorraine claimed that as soon as Ed pulled holy water from his bag and doused the doll with it, the problem with the brakes disappeared. Upon arriving home, Ed and Lorraine placed the doll in Ed's study, where they reported that the doll levitated and moved about the house. Even when placed in a locked office in the outer building, the Warrens claimed that she would return later and find her in the house. Finally, the Warrens decided to lock Annabelle up for good. They made a specially made, specifically designed wood case constructed with the Lord's Prayer inscribed and St. Michael's Prayer inscribed on the other side. For the rest of his life, Ed would periodically say a binding prayer over the case and ensure that the sinister spirit, sinister spirit of the doll remained good and trapped. Since being locked up, Annabelle hasn't moved again, though she's alleged that her spirit has found ways to reach out the earthly plane. Once a priest who was visiting the Warren's Museum picked Annabelle up and discontinued, or sorry, discounted the demonic abilities. Ed warned the priest about mocking Annabelle's power, but the young priest laughed it off. On his way home, the priest was involved in a near-fatal crash that totaled his new car. He claimed to have seen Annabelle in his rearview mirror just before the accident. Years later, another visitor rapped on the glass of her case and laughed at how silly people were to believe in her. On his way home, he reportedly lost control of his motorcycle and crashed headlong into a tree. He was killed instantly, and his girlfriend just barely survived. She claimed at the time of the accident the couple had been laughing about the Annabelle doll. Over the years, the Warrens continued to recount these tales of proof of Annabelle and her horrific powers, though none of these stories could be corroborated. An unfortunate victim of the Annabelle movie encounters is the haunted doll. I mean, the, the names of young priests and the motorcyclists were never divulged. Neither Donna nor Angie, the two nurses who were her first victims, ever came forward with their story. Neither Father Koch or Fa Father Hagen. They were never mentioned again. It would appear that all we have is the warden's words that these uh, these events took place. Now the dolls' real real stories have become a movie franchise. Whether or not the hauntings took place and the tales left behind were, were turned into a series of movies. Of course, there's differences between the Warren's doll and the cinematic counterpart. Most obvious is the doll itself. The real Annabelle is clearly a child's toy, and Raggedy Ann, exaggerated features, plus par plush parts, 
movie version of Annabelle is inspired by the vintage handmade dolls with porcelain and braided hair and glistening eyes. Along with other physical features, Annabelle's antics were signed up were amped up for shock factor shock factor in the movies. Rather than terrorizing a pair of roommates and one boyfriend, the movie Annabelle moves from home to home, attacking families, possessing members of satanic cults, killing children, posing as a nun, etc. 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 Despite that fact, the real Annabelle has one alleged murder under her belt. Though Ed and Lorraine Warren have both died, their legacy has been continued on by their daughter and her husband. Until his death in 2006, Ed Warren considered Tony, their, their son-in-law, his demonology protege, and entrusted him with continuing his work caring for his occult artifacts. Those artifacts include the Annabelle doll in her protective case, echoing the warnings of his predecessors, Tony cautions visitors at the museum about Annabelle's powers. Is it dangerous, he said, for the doll? Yes. Is it the most dangerous object in the museum? Yes. But despite such claims, the Warrens have a complicated relationship with the truth. They became practically household names for their involvement in Amityville Horror, a case that inspired The Conjuring, and their work has become mostly entirely debunked. An investigation New England Skeptical Society provided the artifacts of the Warrens occult museum were mostly fraudulent, citing doctored photos, exaggerated storytelling. For those that still doubt Annabelle's powers, Tony likes to destroy to, to likens disturbing her power to, to playing Russian roulette. There might be just one bullet in the gun, but would you still pull the trigger, or would you just put the gun down and not take the risk? Tony addresses rumors of the Annabelle dolls escape from the Warren's Occult Museum in Monroe, Connecticut. The real-life fears surrounding the original Annabelle doll only flared up even more in August 2020 when reports surfaced that she had been she had escaped from the Warren's Museum which closed down at least temporarily due to zoning issues in 2019. These rumors quickly spread through social media. The reports were quickly outed as inaccurate. Tony himself soon posted a video of himself alongside the real-life Annabelle doll in the museum. Quote, Annabelle's alive, he says, reassured everyone. Well, I shouldn't say alive. Annabelle's in here for her infamous glory. She's never left the museum. End quote. But Tony is also sure to stroke, stoke the fears that have kept Annabelle terrifying for, for 50 years, saying, I'd be concerned if Annabelle really did leave because she has nothing to play with. At some point, I'd like to go and see the museum. I have family back east. I'd live to go play in things back east. I mean, I've, I've... Connecticut's a bit of a distance, but I'm pretty sure I would have fun going from Maryland to Connecticut to check it out. What do you think? <clears throat> Next up, we're going to do The Screaming Skull of Burton Agnes Hall in Burton Agnes, England. In this hall is a creepy paranormal object called The Screaming Skull. It's believed to be that of Catherine Ann Griffith, who died in the same house after being attacked by bullies in 1620. Every night, a terrifying ghost is seen roaming around the skull, make, making tremendous noise and scaring everyone, but only if the skull is not in the house. One, now this is a story being told by someone else, so I'm going to read this word for word from hers. The Screaming Skull of Agnes Burton Hall, Halloween 2010. 
When I was a little girl, I lived for a while in the countryside near Beverly in Yorkshire, which is rather lovely, and we had an amazing, creepy church in our village, Dalton Home, and also lots of splendid countryside to roam around. One of the best things about the area for me, though, was the proximity to Burton Agnes Hall, an incredibly beautiful Elizabethan manor, a house with the most beautiful, wonderful gardens. I spent many happy hours at Burton Agnes at the time, wandering around the beeswax and potpourri-scented mansion <clears throat> with its beautiful light-filled long gallery at the top of the house, sauntering through the gardens, pretending to be Marie Antoinette or Anne Boleyn, Boleyn or whomever my current historical crush was at the time. The really, really thrilling thing about Agnes Burton, sorry, Burton Agnes, though, was the ghost story attached to the house. And since it's for this point, Halloween, I'm going to share it with you. Burton Agnes Hall was built in the early years of the 17th century by Sir Henry Griffith, who planned to live there with his three beautiful daughters. The three girls were enthralled by the creation of their father's gorgeous new house, but it was Anne, the youngest and prettiest girl who was particularly in love with the estate, and was fond of wandering the grounds and the neighboring land, planning new gardens and imagining a happy life that lay before them. However, on one of Anne's countryside rambles, she was set upon by a gang of robbers who took her possessions, then viciously beat her before leaving her, de her for dead. She was discovered and brought home to the hall, but it was too late. The unfortunate girl died a few days later of her wounds. Anne fell into a fever in her final hours and was said to have been in despair thought of leaving her beloved family home forever, so she begged her aghast sisters to ensure that a piece of her would always reside there by removing her head after death and secreting it within the walls of the hall. Unsurprisingly, her family nodded and smiled and agreed to do so as she asked, but as soon as she was dead, she was interred, head intact, in the nearby churchyard, and everyone thought that was the end of the stat. <clears throat> they were wrong. Shortly after the burial of poor Anne, her family's peaceful nights at the hall were shattered by strange bumps, moans, and terrible, spine-curling screams of horror and panic. At first they tried their best to ignore the racket, but then finally, in despair and desperation, they decided to bring Anne's coffin up and do as she had asked originally. From the moment the skull was brought into the house, peace and serenity reigned at Burton Agnes Hall. There was no more reports of horrible disturbances until an unfortunate chambermaid, encountering the skull in a cupboard, threw it with some disgust out an open window, whereupon the bangs and screams began again as it, until the skull was retrieved and placed indoors one more time. Later inhabitants of the worst, uh, later inhabitants of the house, swooped by the presence of the ghastly grinning skull of the murdered girl, did their best to rid themselves of it by burying it in the garden. But no luck again as the nights were again shattered by hideous screams. In the end, it was decided that the best policy was to place the skull in a secret spot within the walls of the house, probably behind some paneling in the great hall, so the presence could easily be ignored and so that Anne's spirit could finally reside in peace at her beloved home. Remembering now that as children we loved to play surreptitiously, tapping at the paneling of the great hall, wondering which one had the terrifying screaming skull, but with no success. I wonder if the local children still do this now. I used to stare up the portrait of Anne sitting with her two sisters, which hung high on the wall in the great hall, gazing down at us with pop-eyed indifference. She was clad in somber black, funeral black, which is a stark contrast to the bright, shimmering lights and silks worn by the other girls. It was intended to, to denote her premature demise. 
That's another place I'd like to check out. Someday I'll make it there. But now, I need your input. What do you think? Let me know. Good night. Another what in the short for you. Hotel Monte Vista in Flagstaff, Arizona. The Hotel Monte Vista has numerous paranormal guests they can't get rid of. The hotel, which opened as the Community Hotel in 1927, named after the townspeople who helped raise the funds for its construction, has a history of underground opium dens, speakeasies, and gambling. Today, the hotel is known for the paranormal activity that haunts some of the rooms and halls. Guests who stayed in the room 220 have experienced the TV changing channels on its own accord and have said they felt cold hands touching them in their sleep. There's also reportedly a phantom bellboy who knocks on doors and announces room service, but when guests get to the door, there's no one there. One of the more popular and possibly most disturbing encounters is the sound of an infant crying in the basement. The hotel website reads, staff have found themselves running upstairs to escape the sound of the cries though the sounds are very real to those who hear them. There has been no information that has explained the phenomenon. Well, folks, we hope you enjoyed those shorts tonight. What do you think, dear? I think we were discombobulated. A little discombobulated, which is why we did the shorts in the first place. It's been a weird week. Yeah, it's it's hard getting everybody together when everybody's sick or depressed or something like that, and and uh, we or busy working. We're busy working, and yeah, we understand all that. So we make allowances, and hopefully next week Tracy will be able to join us. Hopefully. And I want to thank her again for sending in those shorts for us. Thank you, Tracy. That helped a lot. Um, so. That's going to do it for tonight. Um, just want to let, <clears throat> just want to remind everybody how to get a hold of us if they want to leave us messages or drop a segue even if they want to. You can drop a message through our Gmail account at whatinthepodcast at gmail.com. You can do it through our Facebook group at the What in the Podcast Facebook group. Look for myself or Adriana or Tracy. We're all there always. And my picture for myself is Dollface right now. I've been using Dollface for my, my Facebook picture. She's so. pretty easy to find. I'm easy way. to yeah. find. Definitely. <laughs> and of course, lastly, Tracy's favorite, but she's not here, so we're going to have to try and muddle through this one. You can actually leave us a message under the description. Under the description of this particular podcast or any of our podcasts for that matter. You'll see a little uh, underlined line of sentencing that says leave us a voicemail message. You click that link, which is what it is, yes, and it will take you to our messaging site on Spotify. It'll ask for your uh, email. It'll send you one email, and that's it. It won't keep harassing you or filling up your spam folder. Just one time, and you can ignore it. The email's just to get you started, basically. You don't have to respond if you don't want to. Nope. But at that point, you can start to record your messages. If you don't like them, re-record record them. them. But please you send them to us. You don't have to save them until you got them just the way you want them. And please send them to us. Yep, We'd love them. to hear it. We would love to hear from you guys. Also, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or anything like that, please, uh, if you do enjoy what we do, uh, rate us. 
rate us. Um, also, those of you who are out of our country, which is the U.S., uh, and you do rate us, please let us know what you said, what your ratings were on either Facebook or our email, uh, because we don't have access to that. And we'd love to hear from you. You know, We, we know you're listening because it tells us you are, but... Um, not just hear from you, but send us your comments. We want to yeah, your comments, safe. anything you know. Especially like in the case Adrian mentioned, if you're not in the United States, and you're rating us, and you're rating us, or, you want to let us know how we're doing. Send us a, a message through our Gmail account or our Google account, even or just the messenger. All ratings are much appreciated. We want to hear from everybody, and we hope that you guys do enjoy the show. Yes, and you know, for those of you that have joined our podcast or our, our Facebook group, I hope you're finally listening because a lot of them aren't. So, yeah. um, they join the group and they participate, but they don't always uh, listen. Now, if you are one of our <laughs> listeners, the only other thing I ask you to do is spread the word. Oh yeah, if tell you enjoy the podcast. Let other people talk, tell you know, let other people know that we're out there. Most definitely. This is the way we grow our podcast: word of mouth and ratings. <laughs> So that's going to do it until next week. We hope you guys all stay safe and sane and happy. And for now. And enjoy. Be careful, but enjoy going out to eat in restaurants now that things are slowly opening. Things are slowly opening. Just Still use your masks and be protected. That's right. And for now, cue the gremlin. What nah.